Hey, everybody. Welcome to my channel. Welcome to the podcast, Mormon History Hoedown. Um, I'm your host today, Kara Burrell. Uh, sometimes I go by Nuanto. Sometimes I talk about all different types of things on my channel, but one of my absolute passions is understanding Mormon history, where it started, how the doctrines developed, and how we got to where we are today. So I'm super excited to have an expert on to discuss their new book and take us through all of these different factions of Mormonism, these breakoffs, these different influences, and discuss his book, American Zion. So welcome to the show, Ben Park. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for hosting me. Absolutely. I'm so excited. I just finished your book last night, and it's coming out on January 16th. That's correct. A week from tomorrow from when we're recording. Perfect. Okay. So um, we're going to get into an introduction on Ben and talk about this book and give viewers, if you're familiar with Mormonism, if you're not, I think it's a really important like kind of microcosm of a lot of different aspects of American culture, how religions develop. And you guys are in for a really good one. Ben, you're absolutely one of my favorites. So welcome everybody to the Mormon History Hoedown. All right, Ben, give my viewers a quick introduction of your background, your expertise, and uh, let everyone know why you're the coolest person to listen to right now. Well, if I'm the coolest person to listen to, then that's a pretty damning indictment of others at this moment. But I am Ben Park. Uh, I received uh, a bachelor's degree in English and history from BYU before I went overseas and received a master's degree in theology from the University of Edinburgh and a master's degree in politics and a PhD in history from the University of Cambridge. Um, I taught at the University of Missouri for two years before coming to Sam Houston State University, which is where I currently teach. Uh, I am the author or editor of five books now. Uh, the book that I'm probably most known for in, in these circles are Kingdom of Nauvoo, The Rise and Fall of a Religious Empire on the American Frontier. And then, of course, my new book uh, coming out next week is American Zion, A New History of Mormonism. Amazing. So um, I've been a huge fan of yours for a long time from reading Kingdom of Nauvoo, and I'm really excited to read this new book and give people kind of an under, you know, if somebody sees this book at a airport and they're looking for something to read, maybe they're familiar with Mormonism, maybe they haven't. Um, who did you write this book for and why should people read it? Honestly, the airport bookstore is the ideal place uh, to get into. And and uh, I was very fortunate to have Kingdom Nauvoo uh, pop Flying up off the shelves. Yeah, 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 exactly. No. Uh, um, and so it's designed for a general audience, often those who aren't familiar with Mormonism, although I tried to write it in a way and include certain people and events and things and arguments that will appeal to those who do know a bit about Mormon history and are either missing certain parts of that history or, or more importantly, don't understand the broader context in which Mormonism took place. So I'm both trying to convince those who don't know about Mormonism why it's important to know about Mormonism. And I'm also trying to convince those who do know about Mormonism why it's important to understand the broader American historical context. Uh, like I said, I read this book and finished it last night. I took a couple screenshots and excerpts 
that I wanted to to start with and read, and then we can kind of jump into if that sounds all right. Sounds great. So towards the beginning of the book, Ben writes, this is the first book since the so-called Mormon moment to tell the history of Mormonism. American Zion takes advantage of a plethora of new sources that have been available for only the past 20 years or so, including the personal records of the church leaders and other consequential figures to demonstrate how Mormon tradition has been repeatedly transformed over 200 years, often by internal and external batter battles over culture, not merely the theology. So pause there for a second. Um, you go on to explain that so well through the book. That is, to me, kind of what the book is entirely about. So somebody, what I just said, went over their head. What are you trying to get across there? Sure. Basically, religions often function when they have a historical component by arguing that the religion has been the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? Because your denomination is an extension of God. God is timeless. God is changeless. Therefore, a church is cha changeless. Or So... But historians, their primary objective is to trace change over time. And so on the one hand, I'm trying to show how Mormonism has changed and evolved. But more than that, I'm particularly interested in how those changes were rooted in conflicts, those conflicts that both took place within the church and those that were taking place in America more broadly, but swept Mormonism within it. I got a taste of this when I was a BYU student. I witnessed lots of protesting and fighting and church policies being enacted as a result. And so it totally. made sense to try to find those same types of things going on in the past. So it, it wasn't until I, I really wrote the entire book that I was talking with my editor how to frame the overall argument and especially the introduction that I realized that what I'm trying to offer here is 200 years of culture wars and societal totally. and giving the background to we now live in an age of fracture with lots of competition. While we often want to think that what the period we're living through now is new, it's really been with us ever since the beginning. So I'm trying to give a historical genealogy of how did we get to an era riven with dissent and fighting and protesting and backlash and retrenchment. And that's what I'm trying to do. Absolutely. And uh, I feel like I know my Mormon history really well, but what I really like about the way that this book is written, um, I don't think I've ever found something in all of my reading that really does start with that kind of overarching theme from start to finish. So, uh, you know, starting with Joseph Smith, how things came about and really touching on all of those conflicts. And then uh, I know that when you were kind of writing the book, you kind of uh, wanted to to put in different characters that rose to the surface those different conflicts over and over again the race ones the 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 feminist points the you know the polygamy points that were constantly like rearing their ugly heads all all throughout all the way up to the the present day taking a really long broad like understanding of all of these different conflicts how they they've come out and I, i've never seen a book like that 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 so many different times, like you said, these conflicts aren't new, though, where I would just get chills reading different parts of the history where you're like, the more you learn about Mormon history, you do see the evolution, you do start to understand and get chills of like, the culture wars, wars we see right now are not really anything new. And the church kind of wants to tell us that they're new. But you know, 
the the culture that Joseph Smith himself grew up in. They thought that like American cult, you know, religious culture that was already damned. You know, you just you I got chills so many times and spooked of just how how much these these things keep circling back. Yeah, I mean, it's the job of the historian to both unpack what the past was, but also to explain how the past is relevant for today. The, the past is gone. We ne can never fully recreate it, but we can ask questions that bring us to our sources and then help us come up with answers. And what I try to do in American Zions is show that if we take our questions that are so relevant today, questions over gender identity, over women's inclusion, over racial equality, um, over dissent and obedience, we can see how we got to the world now by tracing the, these trajectories that led us today. And more so by, by tracing that, we can see that it wasn't always predetermined to end this way. And so I tried to unpack several moments in the past where Mormonism might have taken a different direction. And that if it wasn't for particular cultural climates or domineering individuals or institutional clashes, Mormonism might have evolved in a very different way. Um, and so if a historian's job is to show you how something has gotten from there to here, I think it's also the job of the historian to show why it didn't go there or why it didn't go off in this direction. And so I, I think there's several moments that I, I see as key, you know, pivot moments uh, that really came to be most relevant to understanding uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as it exhibits in 2024. Yeah. And we are so used to the pivot moments of, uh, you know, things that push people into faith crises, maybe, or the pivot moments of the culture war now of where the church takes a stand. But when you really lay them out in uh, in yeah historical order, it is a, a really fascinating, easy read. Um, and and it feels like a like a nine part HBO docuseries that you play out in your mind because you know what the pictures look like. But there's also pictures in your book. But yeah. You so, listening HBO, she just gave you a pitch. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'll be associate producer for giving you the idea. It's fine. Um, so, so, so some of those uh, pivoting moments, I want to skip to um, the beginning of the, the story of Mormonism with Joseph Smith and his family, as much context as you want to add to this for maybe anybody who's clicking on this and they just, they know about Mormonism, but they don't, they know about Joseph Smith. They know about a few different things, but um I'll go ahead and read this and then you can add as much context as you feel like you want to allow. So the sure. this portion of the book uh, reads, the family of Joseph Smith Sr., that's Joseph Smith's dad, and Lucy Mack Smith, his mom, felt the consequences of this new culture more than most. They had been tossed to and fro upon the waves of religious change, economic turmoil, and societal transformation. These are the pivotal moments we're talking about of where Mormonism has grown from. But out of those trials came a new prophet visited by God, ordained by angels, and empowered to translate an ancient record. It is my duty to say to you that the need was never greater of the new revelation than now, blasted Emerson, referring to uh, uh, fill in the beginning of his name for me. Ralph, Ralph Waldo. Waldo Elder Emerson, thank you. To a shocked gathering at Harvard ministers to be in 1837. Though Emerson... Uh, blanched at the type of revelation and especially the revelatory authority that eventually flowed from Joseph Smith Jr. 
he appreciated its audacity so much. Uh, we could expand upon every couple of words in there, but it, I think to really understand the beginnings, beginnings of Mormonism, it was this, you know, burned over district and all of the societal transformation of this new country coming in and what a perfect opportunity it was for Joseph Smith with his talents to, to birth. Yeah. This new religion that could have gone so many different ways. So tell me more about how Mormonism started. Yeah, I think it's sometimes easy to forget that Joseph Smith was born at a point when America was a brand new experiment. They're just a right. generation removed from declaring independence from Britain and religious liberty or the practice to the freedom to practice the religion of your choice was a brand new idea to many. And while it, that was exciting, and there was exciting to, for religious experimentation and economic adventuring and lots of, of chances to pave your own way in America, that also brought some daunting challenges. Um, and I think so- A little I too much about, freedom. <laughs> yeah, a, a little too much freedom, as you might tell your children. Um, there was, with Joseph Smith's grandparents, they kind of reaped the benefits of what this new world offered in the sense of where they received new financial stability, they experienced new religious denominations, and they're mostly happy with how the world was, you know, evolving. Whereas Joseph Smith Sr. and Lucy Mack Smith, they experienced some of the downsides of this new religious and economic marketplace to where they're, they become spiritual wanderers, and Lucy Mack Smith is terrified that they're never going to find religious harmony in their home. Joseph Smith Sr. ends up not being a smart financial investor, and he loses a lot of their money. And so they move from the dream of owning their own property to being renters for several years. And so what the what we call the democratization of America, right? The broadening of this democratic impulse and the chances and experiments and, and challenges for these early Americans, it, it brought them to a point to where they're seeking for solutions for a world that seems to be teetering out of control. Um, and that's at the cusp of when Joseph Smith starts claiming to have his own religious visions and uh, experiences and manifestations. And so I try to emphasize that Joseph Smith's earliest claims can't be understood in a vacuum of just an individual seeker or individual opportunist, however you want to see it. But it has to be understood within a much broader climate that can be that, as one historian described, was a hot house of religious innovation. And they're responding to cultural elements and economic concerns that drive our lives today. And so it shouldn't be a surprise that those same types of elements drove the lives of the Smith family. It's a really important piece of American history to understand. So from the religious fervor and experimentation of Joseph Smith's time and his treasure digging talent, the spiritualism that cropped up and him uh, finding the Book of Mormon plates, allegedly translating it, all of that history can all, you know, be sliced and diced of, of exactly what happened. But throughout the book, you kind of seems like you wanted to explain that, you know, these are the things that happen in this environment and then what comes next. So that's kind of, uh, and you know, from this idea of Joseph Smith having this, this authority 
then what does he do with the authority? And I was surprised by a lot of different things that I didn't even realize um, about the early splinters that happened within Mormonism. So take me through a couple of the early aspects of, you could say, Kirtland, Nauvoo, different things that um, listeners might be surprised to learn to know about where those conflicts arose and, you know, um, what direction Mormonism ended up taking, which I would say is like usually a very authoritarian direction, but, right. but, um, uh, and, and corporatizing kind of over time, but did, it wasn't always like that. Right. And it's also, I mean, the perils of democracy is that if you grant too much people, too much freedom, it falls into anarchy. Um, and Mormonism confronts that problem from the very beginning to where many people, many historians see Mormonism as the great democratizing religion, right? They are giving the religious power back to the people who plow, who push the plows in the fields, right? We're returning religious leadership to farm boys. But Mormonism also had an authoritarian streak from the very beginning. Um, Joseph Smith granted a, you know, a leadership structure that, yes, you didn't have to have a degree in divinity to lead, but you also needed to have, you know, permission from the leader, Joseph Smith. And so it's one of these paradoxes of democratic religion that you want to grant universal power, but within a certain conflict. So I'll talk about two specific examples in 1830, right? The Within the first year of the church being organized in April of 1830, you have a number of challenges to Joseph Smith's authority. First, within his own household, I think Emma Smith starts having some concerns within months of the organization of the church. She doesn't attend the organization. She seems a bit standoffish for a bit. And I think part of it, she was worried about, A, what is this going to mean for my life going forward? Attention that she's going to be dealing with for the next 14 years. But also, what is her role going to be in it? And Joseph ends up dictating a revelation to her that and later is canonized as DNC 25, the first revelation that's, you know, dictated to a woman. And it kind of, it's, provides a vision of what gender is going to be like in, in Mormonism, where women can be exhorters and they can be expounders of scriptures and you can put together a hymnal, but you're not going to hold the priesthood. And I really think it's important that when Joseph Smith is dictating these things, it's not coming out of nowhere. Um, we read these texts that Mormons later canonize as revelations and you almost, and you, you have to realize that that's just one side of the conversation because they are responding to something. And to be able to understand what they're responding to, you have to get into the context. So Joseph Smith's revelation on the role of women in early Mormonism is in response to concerns by Emma Smith and others. And as a result, ever since then, Women who are in some way affiliated with their neighboring to Mormonism are going to be coming up against or reacting to or appropriating those principles that were written down by Joseph Smith in summer of 1830. One other challenge that year, <clears throat> Joseph Smith soon finds out that his second in command, Oliver Cowdery, and several other uh, leading men in the church like David Whitmer are starting to follow um, another member of the church who is claiming to have 
uh, revelations that he sees in a seer stone, the same process through which Joseph Smith had dictated his revelations. So that brings and up- he's like, no, 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 only me. <laughs> right, exactly. And I think that's another main pivot point because up until that point, there was nothing in the church that said, hey, everyone go find your seer stones and read your revelations. And that's how God's going to speak to you. That would have been one particular direction for Mormonism, but Joseph Smith steers in another direction. He dictates a revelation and says only through Joseph Smith is uh, God going to speak. And that, you know, re-emphasize a certain kind of authoritarian direction that's going to curtail what they see as the excesses of democracy. And so just there in that first year, 1830, you see two of the central tensions of Mormonism that the faith struggles with ever since. What is the role of women? And what is the role of democratic dissent versus authoritarian control? Absolutely. And again, with your background in American history and Mormon studies and all of these different things that crop up that tell us about that direction, and then including, you know, the stories of Emma Smith and different feminist leaders, different black people throughout his throughout, you know, the makings of Mormonism and everything. It's just so interesting the directions that it took and what the um, what that was saying very authoritarianly, but what it was saying to, you know, further people down the line of all the way up to 2024 now of everything that we see now, you can kind of find a root in with Joseph Smith's leadership in so many different ways. And the voices of the marginalized and the American history of, you know, those outside influences, like the the quote that I read at the beginning, all playing major roles and factors in all of those yeah, decisions that that we deal with now. So it's right. We, it's and, so and, interesting. And just a month or a few months after the episode, I I just talked about you got the first black convert to Mormonism, a guy by the name of Black Pete in early Kirtland, uh, Ohio, who is seen as a leader of the branch that they had there. And he, you know, leads them in ecstatic worship services. And within months, he is out of the church because again, church leaders take a different direction. We that That's a bit too crazy. We need a bit more cultural respectability. That's not what we've signed on with. And so Black Pete is lost to history as a result. I mean, we don't know his full name. We just know what they referred yeah. to him in those newspapers, which was Black Pete. And so... Once again, you have this tense history of racial inclusion versus exclusion that was present as early as January of 1831, and Mormonism is still struggling with in January of 2024. Exactly. Would you mind going into a little bit more of the history of, of race? Um, and I'd love to talk about the history of women's roles and, and circle back to that in a second, because that's a, a major part of the book where so many different feminist leaders. I used to not even like to throw around the word feminism in relation to my name, but when you understand, because there's so many characters throughout history who have just given us the rights that we enjoy today and telling their stories are so important. So um, would you mind telling me a little bit more about how the, the racial doctrine and policies developed throughout Mormon history and kind of what the influences inside and outside, what those battles and conflicts were like? Yeah. The evolution of Mormonism race, simple topic. Um, First, it's important to note that Mormonism is born in an era where racial ideas, especially connected to religion, are in flux. Uh, you have a, a growing slave empire within America, and with that, 
a growing pro-slavery theology that you see in certain segments in the nation that I think are going to end up influencing Mormonism at the same time that you have a growing abolitionist theology coming out of the North. Um, mm -hmm. And those things are going to be in competition. You also have debates over are all races descended from one ancestor or do we have multi racial uh, lineages that had never met and therefore should always be separate. Those are all questions that people like Joseph Smith and others are trying to answer. Mormonism's answers are never fully consistent, nor are they fully coherent in, this, in the form of being, you know, systematic. Uh, they're, they're often inchoate, they're evolving. Um, we have in the Book of Mormon the statements that all are alike under God, black, white, male, or female. But then you have Joseph Smith when he ends up producing a book of scripture called the Book of Abraham that speaks of a racial curse. Although I should note that you don't have many Mormons connecting those passages in the Book of Abraham to those of African lineage until decades later. But at least the seeds of that is there. You have several early uh, black converts to the faith, uh, both men and women. Uh, some black men who hold the priesthood, like Elijah Abel, who is ordained uh, by uh, Joseph Smith to a 70 in Kirtland. Um, you have several other black members like Jane Manning James, who are full members of the community in Nauvoo. And then you start seeing a bit of a hardening. Uh, now, I should say there's not some Edenic great racially inclusive period of the church in Kirtland and Nauvoo. Just as Joseph Smith was allowing Elijah Abel to both be ordained to the priesthood and exercise the priesthood, he's also signing city ordinances in Nauvoo that outlawed, outlawed interracial marriage. So, right, it, it, I need to make clear that there's no racial universalist or early Mormonism that, you know, they lost. But there were some policies that were scaled back. And I think a lot of those policies get scaled back in the late 1840s. When Brigham Young finds out, uh, discoveries through several black members of the faith, that one of the greatest fears of northern white men was coming true in Mormonism, which is if you allow an interracial uh, congregation, that's going to result in interracial sex because you have several black members of the faith who end up... Uh, marrying or at least uh, uh, becoming affiliated with white women. And that's where you draw the line. And so you see William McCary in Winter Quarters, later uh, Walker Lewis's son, Enoch Lovejoy Lewis out in Massachusetts. They both get caught with white women. And Brigham Young declares that that interracial relationships are appalling. We need to do all we can to stop it. And that's what results in the early 1850s with him declaring that there is a curse placed on those who are descended of Ham and that they shall never hold the priesthood. And it's at that same time that Brigham Young declares Utah to be a slave state, although he clarifies it's a different type of slavery than the South, but maybe we can go into that topic another time. Functionally, it's the same. Um, but even then, after Brigham Young makes this, uh, this declaration that there's a racial restriction, it's never fully systematized for decades. It is not until 1908 that leaders of the church um, declare we need to have a standardized 
racial restriction here. And they use the same type of ideology that was then sweeping the nation. That was called the one drop rule. If you had one drop, drop of African ancestry in your blood, that means you are of a different race and you should not have equality. This is at the same time that W.E. Du Bois, one of the great historians, critics, and thinkers of early 20th century said that the 20th century will be delineated on the color line Mormons drew their own color line in 1908. Why in 1908? Many of the early Black pioneers had died by then. They had been the living wow. memories of a, of, of a time where they previously had. I saw someone comment about uh, Joe Smith being sealed to a Black servant. That was Jane Manning James. She claimed that Joe Smith had, seal, had offered a sealing to her um, in Nauvoo. Um, and so she's saying, how do you square that with the fact that now you're not allowing me in the 1890s to enter the temple? Because by then they had a policy that that those with African lineage could not enter the temple. And Joseph F. Smith and others were like, well, Joseph Smith wouldn't have offered some kind of ceiling. We need to come up with something else. So in 1894, they offered to seal Jane Manning James to Joseph Smith in proxy as a servant for eternity. And yet Jane Manning James wasn't even allowed in the temple to participate in that. She, someone acted as proxy for her as Joseph F. Smith acted as proxy for Joseph Smith. Uh, and that's where that ceiling happened. And then that policy that was initiated in 1908, that was formalized, remains in place for 70 years until 1978 when the church, uh, ended that racial restriction that both barred black men from the priesthood and black women from temple uh, uh, rights and full membership. Um, we could talk about the whole lead up of what led to that overturning because that's a fascinating story. Got to read the book itself. for that. Right. But even after, I should emphasize, even after 1978, there were lingering racial problems. And I actually detail in the book how... Um, how there are many black members of the faith who are like, hey, it's great that that restriction is gone. But some of the theologies that undergird uh, that restriction are still in place. And until we confront that, we're going to have, we're going to continue to have major problems. And it's not until 2012 when a BYU professor spoke about, spoke out loud these theological doctrines that had mostly been kept silent that the church is like, oh man, now we need to actually directly renounce this. And that's when we get some of the most direct statements by the church renouncing their past doctrines. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to pull up a slide here about, you know, the gospel topics essays and I, till I find the slide, could you go into a little bit more about, since most of my audience are ex-Mormons and people who have deconstructed the faith for one of the many reasons of, um, I think it's what Mariah said about the lack of discernment happening that I can't find right now. But, um, you know, a lot of my ex-Mormon audience have seen these these conflicts through time and said, how could you not know that the black people are equal? How could you not know these things? They seem to be behind the times. And the church not ever really wanting to put you know, the gospel topics essays across the pulpit in the general conference and not actually make it clear what their <coughs> stances are on these things that um allow people to sweep it under the rug and not confront what marginalized people within the church actually, you know, faithful marginalized people within the church actually go through. So in the context of, of everything that you understand and know about Mormon history, how has the church dealt with in the past and what is it doing now to 
so yeah, kind of uh, never announced to the membership when the changes are going on and what kind of detriment that does to its membership. Yeah. I, no, it's a great question. So one, when it comes to the spirit of discernment and why were church leaders not able to see the toxicity and the trauma that comes from such a, a policy? And I mean, it's over a century of deep trauma that came as a direct result of racial fears and the embrace of broader American racism. Um, that's a theological and cultural argument, right? Uh, why, why don't church leaders see that these policies are evil? Um, as a historian, I can't really answer that, right? That, that's a problem of evil that I'm not really interested uh, or, or I'm interested in, but I'm not equipped as a historian. As a historian, what I can do is place their arguments within their historical context. I think that means a couple of things. What it does not mean is it's not a scapegoat. It's not saying that, oh, they were just products of their time. I hate when people say that, that it is presentist to critique Brigham Young for denouncing interracial unions and starting the racial ban. I hate that statement because they're not, not just because, well, they're prophets and they should discern better. Again, that's a, that's a theological argument. It offends me because there were people in 1852 who critiqued Brigham Young over it. Orson Pratt, another apostle, spoke in and said, actually, I don't think there's a racial ban. Actually, I think those with African lineage mm -hmm. were equal. Um, there is no such thing as a curse of Cain. There were people back in Brigham Young's time who were denouncing slavery and denouncing racial inequality. And so it, it, that's why I get frustrated when I hear those presentist arguments. And also, not to get all Freudian and make the LDS church lay across my bed and me, for me to diagnose them, I think it's for a lot of church leaders, one of the reasons why they don't foreground emphasizing how they were wrong in the past on these racial ideas is because as soon as you undercut prophetic fallibility from the 19th century, that's going to potentially... Uh, undercut prophetic fallibility in the 21st century. You don't want to say that Brigham Young was a man of his time on race, because then you might say that Russell M. Nelson is a man of his time on LGBTQ material. And so there's always that balance of how do we manage. So you even see this, by the way, with the 1978 uh, proclamation that you know ended the racial restriction and granted priesthood and temple rights to those with African descent, and now recasts the restriction as we are looking forward to this long promised day when God would eventually lift that yeah. ban and bring it back. If you ask Brigham Young, that day was not going to be in mortality, right? <laughs> that that is kind of recasting the history. Now there were some people later on who said, "Well, you know, one day God is going to grant." Uh, a more racially uh, inclusive thing. But that's, again, that's a, a later creation. And it, and it speaks to this anxiety of religions, why religions are hesitant to directly address their past, or at least want to frame their pa past in a certain way, so as to not undercut their authority in the present. Precisely. And I love how you said that, you know, Brigham Young wouldn't have been saying those types of things and going back to what we were saying earlier about the authority that Mormonism is also a story of where proper authority lies and the the inward and outward battle between all of those things. Let me go ahead and pull up 
the excerpt. So this is talking about um, when that racial ban was about to be lifted. Some could not help but highlight what was missing, however. Ever since Spencer W. Kimball announced the end of the policy, church officials have refused to offer an apology for the pain it had caused. For some leaders, it was a matter of principle. Quote, the history of the church is not to seek apologies or give them. Dallin H. Oaks remarked. He insisted that the word apology does not even appear in scripture. His position is rooted in a broader anxiety among white Americans. Tell me more about that. Yeah, it's one of my favorite writers is the African-American critic James Baldwin. And James Baldwin has said that the original sin of America is white supremacy and how long white supremacy was systematized in our culture, in our laws, in our politics. And until we actually confront that historical fact, we are going to be excusing and avoiding the major issue. Um, That is much easier to create myths and lies. It's much easier to say slavery wasn't the cause of the Civil War. It's much easier to say that segregation in the South was based more on social ideas and not racial um, animus. And it's much easier to say Brigham Young was a man of his time or that God ordained this racial restriction than to directly confront a system and legacy of white supremacy Mm. that many people have benefited from, right? I don't want to admit that my family that I descend from benefited from a culture that privileged those of Anglo-Saxon heritage. And so instead of acknowledging that, I am going to critique critical race theory and other things that directly challenge the foundations of the modern world that I have benefited from. And so in the Mormon context, it's much easier to say that God's prophets were infallible and they were only doing what what God wanted than to confront the all too real human origins of and human context of for the evolution of this doctrine. Right on. And I think that is what we as ex-Mormons, oh, I'll say me as an ex-Mormon. I don't know your, your faith and you don't have to proclaim it here on the podcast. <laughs> But um, me as an ex-Mormon, maybe my audience, that's, you know, one aspect that we are always really harping on that we understand. And we we look at this so-called discernment that we have for so long and this trust in authority leaders and then where that's broken down. But on the flip side of that, um, on, you know, the, the Mormon argument that I was raised on is a lot of fear, paranoia, anxiety and resistance to the outside persecution, some of it imagined and some of it real. So I would love to talk about the, you don't understand Mormon history to me, if you don't understand, you know, the, the true to life uh, persecutions that so many of the saints went through that drove them to, to Utah to create a lot of these policies and what they were in a a response to. So I wanted to read um, a slide here and you can tell me more about this, about just, there is a lot of heartbreak. I, I truly reading this book um, felt like you can't also understand Mormonism until you like love it first, if that's weird to say. Like there's so many aspects of just people that you are are complicated characters, just like you'd watch a movie and you want to root for them, but you also hate them at the same time. There's so many aspects of that in Mormon history of just, I can still cry though, because they're, 
their legacies are not something that I always, you know, want to point my family to respecting. But at the same time, a lot of hurt and turmoil has gone on that inform us today. So um, can you read this? Sure. Do you want to go ahead and read that? Yeah. Do you want me to read both paragraphs there or to start with Smith? Um, yeah, I go ahead and start with Smith and you can add as much context to that since you so know the better than I do. Yeah. So the background of this is the global influenza that was uh, taking over the, the world in 1918 uh, during World War One. Um, that killed millions upon millions of people, including those in Mormonism. Smith was not spared from tragedy. His eldest son, Hiram Mack, died of a ruptured appendix on January 23rd, 1918, after he returned from England. This was only the latest episode in a lifetime of grief for the Smith family. Though he had nearly 50 children from six wives, Hiram was the 13th he had to bury. Polygamy multiplied trauma as much as it did wives. But the death of his firstborn son, named after his own father, who was slain at Carthage, somehow stung even more. Smith, always emotional, confessed an overwhelming burden of grief and tears that confined him to his apartment for months. In some ways, he never recovered. Hiram's widow, Ida Bowman Smith, gave birth nine months later to the couple's final child, who they also called Hiram, named after his father, named after his grandfather. And then later, that same child died along with the mother later that fall. And that all that's all giving context for when Joseph S. Smith dictated what comes to be known as the revelation on the dead that is later canonized as DNC 138. Again, a crucial Mormon document and Mormon moment that can only be understood within this much broader world. And Kara, I'm glad you brought up this point of, you know, crying for some of these individuals. The job of the historian is to humanize these figures of the past, even if you fundamentally disagree with things you do. And you might even say that a lot of them inflicted a lot of trauma and made horrible decisions that hurt other people. The job is that, of the exploring is to explain why they did that. It's mm -hmm. very easy to just categorize them as a black hat villain who, you know, is twirling their mustache and trying to decide how can I inflict pain on people today? Uh, but in reality, Joseph F. Smith is a great example for this. Um, Joseph F. Smith had a hot hot temper. Um, we now know that he likely beat his first wife, uh, that he had a major anger problem. He once nearly beat his neighbor to death. Wow. Um, and he had a fiery temper that ended up uh, framing much of his life. He was also someone whose first memory was seeing his father laid on a slab after he'd been killed in Carthage jail. And that he was forced with his mother to cross the plains um, without much provisions, um, left without the resources he was supposed to by the leader of their uh, wagon company, and then later to see that mother die due to a lack of resources in territorial Utah. That trauma is going to frame someone's life. Um, I strongly recommend Steve Taysom's recent biography of Joseph F. Smith, uh, by the way. So that's just Can one I add one thing? Yeah, You're please. talking about Joseph F. Smith, not Joseph Fielding Smith, not Joseph Smith, not Joseph Smith Sr. <laughs> but you're talking you, about his father was Hiram. His father was Hiram. You can, and you he can saw get, him at four years old, laid out with his face kind of blown yeah, off or something. Blown off. Yeah. yeah no, exactly. Yeah. They they said he did not look natural, as you mm -hmm. might imagine. And yeah. yeah, I mean that's that's gonna that's gonna that's gonna change a person. Um, 
I, I close my second chapter in the book that ends with the with the Mormons leaving Nauvoo with Joseph Smith's early memory of hearing the bells of the Nauvoo temple ringing, marking that men are coming to take the city again. And that's, you know, his enduring memory of his childhood home. And so, yeah, we don't have, this is not to excuse what they did. Um, this is not to, again, use a scapegoat. I'm not saying they're a man of their time and therefore uh, we, we, they get a pass. What I am saying that it's lazy to just, you know, say they're bad people. They must have been born bad. They died bad. They were bad along the way. We need to understand what led them to make certain decisions. And in the end, it's a reflective thing. I, I find myself in some mm -hmm. of these characters and the decisions. And, and so, I mean, history is a humanistic enterprise. And that's what I try to do in the book. Yeah, absolutely. Well said not to excuse, you know, anything, but we can see our modern culture. We can see ourselves in how we are shaped by traumas, influences that are sometimes our genetics, our conditioning. And uh, I'd love to talk more about how, um, obviously, Lindsay Hansen Park, when she talks about Mormonism, she says, you know, the history of Mormonism and polygamy are, are completely intertwined. History of Mormonism is a history of polygamy as well. So we're going to have to hit on that. And I, uh, if you want to take us through what, what, what as a historian do you have to say about polygamy and what new, you know, interesting details or stories do you think would jump out to, you know, the listeners right now that might not know previously, there's so much about polygamy, but anything you want to. Yeah. I add? mean, pol polygamy was of course the driving focus or center point for discussing Mormonism in the 19th century. Um, I make an argument that it originates in Nauvoo. Uh, we could talk about if you want my, my views on, on Fanny Alger. Um, I don't think the Fanny Alger episode in, in Kirtland was polygamy. I think it was an affair. Um, and yeah, I explain yeah. why I think so in the book. Um, then polygamy, it starts in secret in Nauvoo. Um, and then I think it explodes in Utah, right? It becomes the defining feature of the faith. And I'm not just placing that externally on them. That's the saints said that this is our defining feature. This is what's separating us from the world. And as a result, it succeeded in creating this in-group, right? This us versus them and the nation. Um, the I I try to I try to the best of my ability to do a number of things when discussing polygamy. Uh, especially in 19th century Utah. I try to center the experience of polygamy. Of course, I talk about the doctrine and the teachings and and what the Mormon leaders said about polygamy, but I, I tried to emphasize how it was actually lived and the diversity of experiences. Um, those who were living in Brigham Young's compound in downtown Salt Lake City and those who were living in a tiny shed and only and, you know two wives to one husband. I also try to emphasize how polygamy evolved throughout the 19th century um, at, at different points. And then I try to talk about how polygamy fit into the national scene, that you have many people who, outside of Utah, who saw polygamy as America's greatest threat outside of you know, slavery in the South. In fact, when, when the Republican Party was founded in the 1850s, they were determined to, to conquer the twin relics of barbarism, slavery and polygamy. Insert ironic joke about how Mormons later become Republicans. But, um, mm -hmm. and how America ends up legislating and persecuting polygamy 
plays a huge role in how America ends up defining religious liberty. Um, in fact, the uh, the court case that settles uh, polygamy as something that the federal government has the power to outlaw, the Reynolds v. United States in 1877, is the defining Supreme Court decision that determines that people have the freedom to believe what they want, but they don't have the freedom to practice what they want, no matter how sincere your religious belief. And that practice versus belief distinction still governs judicial rulings on religion uh, today. Um, and then, of course, in the 20th century, um, I was... In looking at the legacies of polygamy, and of course, the growth of fundamentalism in the 20th century, that was a topic that was probably the most surprising to me in writing the book, was how much, not only how prevalent polygamy remained in the 20th century and how big the different Mormon fundamentalist groups grew, but also how polygamy continued to shape the Latter-day Saint church that it's responses to the fundamentalists or anxieties over the fundamentalists totally. continue to define mainstream Mormonism. Um, the way that the nuclear family became the center for Mormon ideology was in part due to post-World War II domesticity, where the nuclear family became the center for most conservative Americans, but also because it was a way to differentiate themselves from the fundamentalists. And so exactly, I think you, yeah. you, you can't understand modern Mormonism without understanding the continued influence of the fundamentalists. Because so much of early Mormonism is, yes, like you said, this like allegiance to the doctrine of polygamy that, you know, this is never going away. This is the new higher order of what we're supposed to be living. And then once they realize, you know, I, I love the portions of the book about, uh, you know, manifesto polygamy and then post manifesto polygamy, and then it's still continuing and the break off sex and being sent down to Mexico. And that's where, you know, Mitt Romney's family came from and so many of these different splinter sections and who actually has the, the right idea about what we're supposed to be living and all of that stuff. I love those sections of the book, but truly, yes, like, like the so much of your your work has to do with talking about the this making of this American right and aligning with the evangelical movement with Republican Party, like you just said, in a reaction to everything that they staked their life on, they're willing to die for, that they're willing to start these colonies for, they're willing to move out to Utah for, and how interesting that juxtaposition is that it is like what they what they live for in this this isn't it Brigham Young who said that there's heaven there's no monogamy in heaven that what's that what's, what's that quote from brigham young i don't i don't know what quote you're referring to but i, I mean, thought you they, knew they, everything ben I, I i i like that i have that aura but i don't um i no i mean but they did come to say polygamy was the law of the celestial order and and in, in the face of federal prosecution in the 1880s john taylor who was the prophet until 1887 double down on the issue. Mm -hmm. And I mean, in after federal government passed one of the most restrictive laws that allowed the government to do even more to police polygamy, John Taylor then issued a revelation saying any church leader who is not practicing polygamy will be removed from office. I mean, yeah. that's not, that's not a compromise. Yeah. Right? Do so you mind going? I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, 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 go ahead. I was just going to ask um, one aspect of yeah, Mormon history in that section that I don't think people understand very well um, 
is the the tapering off of polygamy and any stories that you want to tell and any people in those stories, there's a lot of fascinating tales about post-manifesto polygamy still going on and then the church wanting to gain some political influence but not being able to do that without abandoning this and punishing people. Um, but yeah, any stories about post-manifesto yeah. polygamy are always my favorite. They're so fascinating. Uh, well, well, first to give the context in, in when the federal yeah. government passed a number of increasingly restrictive laws in the 1880s, Mormons are basically like, bring it. We, we are going to stand by our principle. We are going to remain under the banner of heaven, come what may. And the government brought it. The, the federal prosecution of polygamy in the 1880s has very few rivals in American criminal history. Hundreds of Mormon men, uh, dozens of Mormon women were thrown in jail. Mormon leaders spent several years on the deep underground. I mean, it's, it's one of these parts to where it's, it's striking that the, the entire Mormon leadership were fugitives from justice for several years. Um, and so it wasn't until 1889 and 1890 that church leaders decided that I think we're losing. This is this isn't going to work. This isn't and, this isn't sustainable. And uh, who was the prophet who didn't even show their face in public or at general conference for John, multiple years? John Taylor delivered a a stirring sermon in January of eighteen forty five, saying, "We shall never relinquish. We've lived through persecution before. We'll do so again." And then he disappeared and he never had a public appearance uh, ever since. Then you have George Q. Cannon, who I argue was actually the most consequential Mormon figure after Joseph Smith in the 19th really? century. He was a counselor in the First Presidency. Um, he's he's going around in disguise. I mean, he talks about how he would like wear a fake, you know, mustache and different clothing and and try to move around town. And then there was one time he was in his disguise that he thought he'd get away with. And one of his friends are like, hey, is that George Q. Cannon? He's like, how did you know? Dude, it's your Roman nose. You can't hide that. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, we, all, we all have our distinctive features. Um, and so in by 1889, 1890, Wilford Woodruff, who was a different prophet than, um, than John Taylor, Although he was pretty adamant before that we'll never give in, they decide we have to give in just for the survival of the church. Not only were all the men being arrested and having to live on the run, but they were going to lose their temples and they were going to lose all their properties and they were going to be disincorporated as a church. And they're pretty explicit that we are making this decision for the temporal salvation of the church that we are going to end. Like they, they're not framing it as God told us that it is time to end polygamy. They're saying we need to end polygamy because our church is going to cease to exist if we don't. Um, and so they end polygamy. They, they, Wilford Woodruff announces his, the manifesto one week after um, they present the manifesto in general conference, the president of the quorum of the 12 apostles is sealing one of the other apostles to a plural wife just to show you like how seriously they're taking it. So publicly they're ending it, but privately they know they have to continue. Um, and so you have several stories. I mean, it's probably several hundred people who enter post-manifesto polygamous unions after 1890. Um, 
It's not until 1903-1904 when uh, Joseph F. Smith, who's the president of the church, uh, sends Reed Smoot uh, to be the Utah senator. This causes a national scandal because they discover Mormons are still practicing polygamy. There's a several-year um, Senate investigation in Washington, D.C. They tell church leaders, look, your church is going to be gone if you don't give in. And so Joseph F. Smith issues what comes to be known as the Second Manifesto in 1904, which is basically, hey, we're serious this time, guys. We're really giving up polygamy. Although they didn't. And there were still others who were practicing polygamy after that. Um, it's probably not until 1908, 1909 that Joseph F. Smith and others are like, all right, now we actually need to start cracking down and stopping it. And there is a division there. It seemed like they had a belief that, well, we're not sanctioning polygamy anymore, but if members go off and do polygamous ceilings on their own, that's not our fault. That's on them, right? We're, we're just not sanctioning them. And so you have lots of stake patriarchs and sealers going around, continue to seal polygamous ceilings. So my favorite anecdote to answer your story of, of these crazy stories um, is this stake patriarch who gets caught up in an investigation of what's going on. And he tells a story and he says, well, I was sealed to a plural wife on this date and this temple and this year. And they said, all right, who was the person who sealed you? And he goes, I don't know. They were wearing a mask. <laughs> and they're like, well, why were they wearing a mask? To hide their identity so that when you interview me, I would not be able to tell you who it was. <laughs> so it's a far cry, right, from the full transparency of having the sealer's uh, signature on your on your uh, marriage certificate. But like, that's how far they were committed to polygamy. Uh, Kathleen Flake, a wonderful historian of Mormonism, once said that if the federal government outlawed the right of baptism, Mormons would have been digging fonts in their basements and continue to practice baptisms, right? That, that's how they believed polygamy was fundamental. And so that's why for many you don't give up fundamental doctrines. You don't. And so that's where Mormon fundamentalism comes from. And that causes an, a deep anxiety in the church because of the 1930s when you have this growing, organized fundamentalist movement who are claiming the Latter-day Saint church is in apostasy because they are not practicing the doctrine according to Joseph Smith, which clearly included polygamy. Church leaders are like, all right, we need to come up with a narrative to explain. And so they say, all right, we can't have that fundamental doctrine. But here are some other fundamental doctrines that we can <laughs> emphasize. The mm -hmm. literalism of the Bible, Joseph Smith's first vision, prophetic infallibility. Um, and so Mormonism ends up retrenching on those other issues in response to the anxiety that was raised by the fundamentalists. I, I, there's a part of that that I want to circle back to in, in just sure. a minute, but I absolutely want to touch on, there's a quote um, about, yeah, there's so many aspects about women and the suffragette movement and um, the Relief Society. The history of the Relief Society was so fascinating. And it's not like you'd go pick up a book like, I want to learn the history of all of the ladies of the church. Uh, but I think it is, it is equal parts with the, the shaping of how the church um, from its early days in the early society. And then my favorite part of the book was then entering into the 20th century and the corporatization, you could call it, of, of the Mormon church. So I would love for you to talk about that from the shift of what the women's roles were 
within polygamy, but with sure. inside the social circles of, 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 yeah, just being these, these helpers in society and, and also trying to change the church in the ways that they saw fit all of those aspects. And then the church always, uh, siphoning their leadership and putting the kibosh on it to what we see today. But again, like, as I started this podcast, I was like, there's so many things where it's like Mormonism didn't always start so authoritarian that way, but it, it obviously had the seeds to grow in that authoritarian way. But the corporatist way, like the evangelical, like right wing way, those all had influences. Right. So there's a quote that says, yeah. And I, and I, and I yeah. had the the quote that you had teed up before I I've already turned oh, to it in my book. So, so, so I'll read it at the end of the answer. So Mormon women, surprisingly, were some of the most outspoken defenders of polygamy. And of course, there's sociological reasons for why you do this for survival mode in various organizations. But I will say it flummoxed outsiders, right? Because at the first in the 1860s, a lot of, uh, you know, national politicians were like, well, the way we overturn polygamy in Utah is we give Utah women the vote. And if we give them the vote, they're going to vote out these polygamous leaders and they're going to bring their own equality. So yeah. they grant, so Utah becomes one of the first states or territories who get the right to vote. One of the great ironies of American history. And they called for, they were activists, agitators for women's suffrage. And, um, but unlike what national politicians expected, the Mormon women ended up supporting their patriarchs. And so Many see this as one of the great ironies of history that the same women who are defending polygamy in public are also some of the most vehement defenders of women's suffrage, of the woman's right to vote. And so there had always been this legacy of women fighting for their rights, even within the Mormon tradition. Now, once polygamy ends, Mormon women are like, hey, You've granted us a space in the public sphere to defend publicly and call for the right to vote. We want to continue to exercise that. And so they continue to push for reform. And so you get the next generation of Mormon women who really wanted to take Mormon feminism or Mormon women's activism, the term they would have used, to the next stage. And that's where women like Amy Brown Lyman come in. Amy Brown Lyman, educated at Chicago, uh, embraces the social gospel of progressive reformers during the era, and she tries to transform the Relief Society into an activist arm, uh, basically an extension of FDR's New Deal. And she does a lot to uh, kind of secularize Relief Society. They transform the magazine into something focused on religious messages, to something that focuses on aid, on on financial aid and cultured uh, growth and other things. She she transforms uh, relief societies into extensions of the Red Cross. Uh, she starts training women to be uh, doctors and midwives and engineers. And the Relief Society magazines talked about going to get so careers. Yeah. Um, and then... <laughs> That butts up against in the 1930s. You get this retrenchment against both progressive politics and this women's activism, um, often driven by J. Reuben Clark, who is a towering figure in the book and kind of reforms Mormonism. In fact, one of my primary arguments in this book is that modern Mormonism was created by J. Reuben Clark in the 1930s in response to 
progressive reformers like Amy Brown Lyman. And so eventually, uh, Amy Brown Lyman is marginalized. She is told that the Relief Society is not to be an activist arm. Instead, it is to be an appendage to the priesthood. It is to be the housemates uh, to their husbands, and they're to, uh, to fulfill a much more domestic internal religious devotional role. And so I think this is the, the paragraph that you were queued up to quote. Lyman was not the last Mormon to push for women's empowerment and social change, of course, but those who followed her, both in time and spirit, operated within more confined ecclesiastical spaces. Many were cast by male leaders as alternative voices, threats to the establishment. Women's activism was thereafter scandalized as external to faithful discourse. Scandalized. Yeah. Was that the quote that you were teeing yeah. up? Yeah. Yeah, okay, I believe yeah. so. Yeah. Um, everything that kind of butts up against whoever kind of holds the talking stick, you could say, and all of those internal struggles, and especially if they're women, anyone on the margins, they're definitely going to be pushed to the bottom. Um uh, I would love to talk more about that aspect of Mormon history that I find endlessly fascinating. Uh, you mentioned FDR. And for people who don't know, can you explain a little bit about um, yeah, how those, those inner conflicts between the church wishing that it could have the type of saints that cleaved solely unto the resources <laughs> of the church and not into these, you know, socialist aspects after, you know, during and after the Great Depression and what kind of impact I feel like FDR and that entire, you know, I would say a couple couple decades changed the course of the church and them trying to regain control. Yeah, um it might strike a lot of modern observers who aren't familiar with the history to know that Mormons weren't always conservative in politics. Um I mentioned earlier that the Republican Party was initially formed to confront, among other things, Mormonism. And so throughout the 19th century, Mormons hated the Republican Party. They saw them as their, their first and foremost enemies. And then you start seeing this, this complicated shift that starts taking place around 1890, where George Q. Cannon recognizes that the Republican Party could actually be their best ally. And so you end up seeing this bargain between LDS leaders and the Republican Party to form a bit of an alliance, but Mormon membership doesn't follow. In fact, for several decades, you see this divide where a majority of Mormon leaders were Republicans and Mormon members were Democrats. And nowhere was this division more stark was during 1930 to 1950, where... Uh, Heber J. Grant, who was the, the prophet, and J. Reuben Clark, who was the most powerful member of 20th century Mormonism, would write editorials in Deseret News denouncing uh, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and the New Deal because they denounced his you know, progressive politics. Um, and despite them endorsing his opponent, Utah voted for FDR four straight times. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, most people would not realize that, that, and, that divide. But what J. Reuben Clark does is he lays the foundation for Mormons to start turning more conservative slowly over the next few decades. And there are several other people who helped that transition. 
Ezra Tap Benson, of course, is is one of the foremost uh, individuals yeah. who embraces a far extreme right wing conservative ideology, a John Birch style conspiratorial view of the world. Cleon Skousen pushing in the same direction. Uh, so that 1964 was the last year that Utah voted for a Democrat. They voted for LBJ, and ever since then, the Mormon rightward march, which matched other. Rightwood marches. I mean, Utah has a lot in common with the American South in terms of political transformations throughout the 20th century. Mm -hmm. So much so that now the Mormons and the Republicans uh, take it for granted. And I remember you had queued up another um, another uh, quote from the book that I'll go ahead and read, where I say, the long road that led to the seemingly irreversible Mormon-Republican alliance was built over a century. It was made possible by a series of pragmatic compromises and cultural shifts. George Q. Cannon set the motion in pro set the process in motion. J. Reuben Clark solidified its direction. Ezra Benson shepherded its fulfillment, and Mitt Romney reaped its benefits. Not even Donald Trump could fracture its foundations. Yet while America's cultural or conservative coalition appears to have predetermined from the start, it has always been historically contingent on particular personalities and cultural influences. Hmm. Every sentence you write, I'm just like, mm, you pack in so much. Um, precisely. That's so well said. So I would love to also touch on, I know you have to run soon. Um, also a good uh, time to shout out. Make sure you uh, press the like button, subscribe. You know where to donate. Links down below for my nonprofit now, the New Unplugged Foundation, bringing you lots more amazing interviews like this. I got a ton more coming this week and next. Um, so, uh, the thing I kind of wanted to circle back to and incorporate all of this around is just how much, yes, there's this authoritarian type of aspect of the church where we are the one true restored gospel and these people are prophet seers and revelators. And then the coalition, you could call it this alignment of where we find ourselves today. So you mentioned a bunch just now of these different turning points, um, especially Ezra Taft Benson being a huge one, being very conspiratorial. Uh, I think you have a quote in the book about how he was trying to run as vice president of the United States and tried to get the the okay from Elder McKay to do that. And Elder McKay to, said no. To serve on the campaign, uh, to be the vice president on George Wallace's campaign. George Wallace, the Alabama so just governor. Just crazy people. <laughs> Famous. He's the guy famous for saying segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. We were one. Right. We were one David O. McKay approval away from Ezra Taft Benson saying being his vice presidential candidate. Pivotal moments like that, you know. So there, and then didn't you mention then a couple months after that? Yet still, uh, Benson gave a talk in conference, his famous one where he called out MLK. Which yeah, know, Martin Luther King Jr. is a week from today, too. It's like he called him out for being part of the communist plot directly yeah, from general I, conference. So, it, yeah, any I, stories like that that you want to tell that keep influencing the ways that this coalition is formed is so fascinating. Well, I think one of the lasting legacies of of Ezra Benson's far extreme right wing conspiratorial views, and he was one of those figures to where um, 
I, I go in and I try to humanize individuals and I try to find their motives. And Ezra Benson was a hard figure for me. He, he's, <laughs> he, he comes out harder to, to like the, the more mm -hmm. you study him, at, at least during the 1960s, where he really was radicalized by the civil rights uh, movement. And um, he, one of the lasting legacies of his is in reading the Book of Mormon in a way that confirms a right-wing extremist conspiratorial view of the world, thinking that there's this global cabal seeking to overturn the world and that progressivism was a tool of that cabal. I mean, Benson flat out came and said that the civil rights organizers were the pawns of communists. And so that same legacy still shapes Mormon discourse today where they denounce progressive politics as being communistic. And as Ezra Benson taught us, communism is of the devil and needs to be opposed. And also this, this grander speculative conspiratorial thinking is what lays the groundwork for how 40% of Mormons in America believe Donald Trump's lie that the election was stolen. Right. I mean, those types of ideas don't pop out of nowhere. They're built on the foundations that have been laid by historians in the past or by historical figures in the past. And so what I try to show in the book is that we're living in the world that was created by these decisions and ideas that appeared decades ago. And not until we confront those things do can we see how to untangle ourselves from that history. Mm -hmm. Let me, I did pull up this quote. I wanted to read um, maybe the top of it. So much of Mormonism has to do with, like you said, kind of finding a place within the doctrine to be able to manifest certain religiously racist ideas and how much um, Native Americans and all these different aspects of what it means to be indigenous to the American continent in Mormonism, to be like a Lamanite and a Nephite, and that your skin turned dark from disobedience and it can be turned light through adhering to what these white Mormon men kind of have to say and how many people throughout Mormonism have actually been converted, indigenous, white, whatever, um, to those types of ideas and how that is... Um, yeah, it just has a, these deep roots that are still kind of sick within our culture sometimes today. And um, I wanted to read this quote. And then if you can kind of just give us your your summation of how everything that we've talked to uh, um, talked about uh, still kind of needs to be rooted out. So did you want to read this quote? I like no, when you go read it in your author voice. Uh, uh, sure. Which uh, which I'm just start the indigenous states. OK, uh, yeah, yeah, at the top of the. Yeah. Yeah. Um, indigenous saints also welcome, also continue to seek ways of blending their faith with that of their ancestors. A group of BYU faculty, students, and alumni organized a roundtable in 2019 to address lingering Mormon theologies of colonialism in the form of Latter-day Saint reverence toward Columbus. While much of America fought over the colonist's bloody legacy, saints had a particularly complicated attachment. One Book of Mormon passage refers to a man being led by the spirit of God to travel upon the many waters. Many saints therefore believed Columbus, Columbus fulfilled 
a divine mission. Yet this doctrine of discovery, according to Danae's scholar Farina King, is antithetical to the true gospel. Sacralizing stories of colonialism and conquest have blinded and misled members about the complexities and realities of the past and their constant relevance to our present and future. Ronnie Joe Draper, a Uruk professor at BYU, accused these ideas of providing a prophetic veneer to an expression of white supremacy. Yeah, so Amazing. one of yeah. one of my one of my main goals in the book is not just to talk about race and and foreground the story of race within. Oh, yeah, it's about a, a lot of things. <laughs> it's yeah. about a lot of things. Yeah. Um, but not well. Yeah, and it's not just a foreground race, but also to foreground the voices of racially of marginalized races in Mormonism, right? That, that I don't want to just, I didn't just want to talk about the Mormon theology of Lamanites, right? This placing a Book of Mormon framework on an existing idea of white supremacy that disenfranchised and disinherited Native Americans throughout several centuries. But I wanted to show how Native Americans Native American Mormons struggled with that. I talk about Lacey Harris, a, a BYU student in the 20th century who um, who wrote a wonderful essay talking about his attempts to square his Navajo heritage or his Ute heritage, I'm sorry, with his Mormon teachings and in the end deciding he couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. But I also talk about others who claim that they can find ways to square. And I think it's important um, to not just understand the, the importance of race to the Mormon story, but also to emphasize how the people affected by those racial policies, whether they be Black or Native American or Hispanic, um, were trying to carve out spaces in Mormonism, whether that was welcome or not. And then finally to exactly, place that yeah. within a broader context of many American Christians trying to confront the legacies of racism and colonialism of which Mormonism is just a part. Mm -hmm. Well said, well said. Um, the thing that a lot of people struggle with on all these different aspects from race to women's rights to gay issues, you, you touch on all different aspects. And I think it's really approachable for like just such an, you know, anybody who is familiar with Mormonism, not conservative, liberal or not. I think that you do a fantastic job of, of balancing, yeah, different characters throughout history of Mormonism, of, of what challenges that they faced and where they, they ended up and at least bringing yeah, those, those pain points, those arguments of different sides. The nuance loves it. It's, it's at least fascinating from your historian background where you're not as opinionated as I will be, but yeah, super fascinating. So, um, I, I have one last question for you, and then you can kind of tell me what, um, yeah, yeah, anything else that we didn't touch on that you'd want to uh, share. So, so many people only became familiar with Mormonism, where, you know, if I put that in a, a headline on my YouTube channel, more people are likely to click on it than they would maybe 10 or 15 years ago, sans the fact that YouTube wasn't around as much. But you know what I mean? The 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 Mormon moment, so to speak, of, you could say, the Olympics, Mitt Romney running for president, the Book of Mormon musical, and different aspects of just Mormonism, their faith, people wanting to know what we believe, or I used to believe, what, what all of this Mormonism is about. So uh, if you could take me through a little bit about the this Mormon moment in history that's cropped over, up over the last few years, and how you think the church has responded to it, and Latter-day Saints themselves, how they have either, you could say, um, capitalized on it, or 
what kind of impact it's had on Mormonism generally? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I have a, a couple of thoughts and, and maybe I'll frame it around the differences of the current Mormon fascination with the most recent one, which many remember around 2012 when Mitt Romney was running for the presidency. We had the Book of Mormon musical introduced on Broadway, winning basically every Tony Award imaginable. Uh, we have Clark, had Clark Christensen on the cover of Forbes. I mean, it, there really was a more moment. And now we have, you know, Daughters of a Cult, the great new series on Hulu. We had Under the Banner of Heaven last year. And, I, and I'm wondering, because I think there's something different about the Mormon moment now. The, the a little bit darker. <laughs> a li yeah, no, that's it. It's a bit darker. And I think back in 2012, it was almost a more a moment of awakening, right? It was in the wake yeah. of the Olympics and they were just trying to, what is this religion? And mm -hmm. it's almost being introduced to it the, in, in a very friendly way. I, and I think that the, the Mormons were very, the, the Mormon leaders were very smart in how they handled the, the PR during, with that I'm a Mormon campaign, right? Where it's like, I skateboard to work and I'm a Mormon or mm -hmm. I, you know, can sing falsetto while scuba diving and I'm a Mormon. And I think that whole thing, you know, humanized the saints in a way and it, it was an introduction. Now we're in a bit of a darker moment. We're, we're in a much more divided nation, a much more fractured society that's divided over fundamental questions of race and gender and belonging. Um, like a culture and, war that the church has yeah. kind of picked a side on. And, and that, so instead of being kind of like these warm, bubbly, everyday neighbors, Mormons are looked to and in a way presenting themselves as an embodiment of one side of the culture wars. If anything, Mormons are doubling down on these issues of gender uh, that are increasingly becoming the harbinger of the modern culture wars. And so Mormons are being looked at as an embodiment of the role that religion continues to play in modern America for good or ill. And for many people for ill, right? Seeing this idea that why are religious beliefs still driving a seemingly secular democracy where we're supposed to be divorced from the church, right? There's no, where there's yeah. not supposed to be a relationship between church and state. You're talking about Utah? Yeah, you, Utah in general, but America, right? We're, oh, yeah. we're in a moment of, I, I just came back from the American Historical Association this last weekend. And oh, one oh. of the most, and one of the most important themes that nearly everyone is talking about is the rising Christian nationalism, right? This mm -hmm. idea of, of someone's extremist white Christian nationalist belief driving their politics. We currently have a Speaker of the House who is a outspoken Christian nationalist. And we have right-wing evangelicals driving the Republican Party in a certain direction. And in that climate, Mormons are providing a useful example of how we got to this point or what are the ramifications of this? Um, what, how can religious belief drive someone to extreme actions and policies? And so that's why you see a lot of emphasis on fundamentalists. That's why you see a lot of emphasis on, you know, the, the crackdown on LGBTQ inclusion or now the transsexual uh, issues. And so yes. I think a lot of reactionary politics, which I, yeah. I didn't realize when I was Mormon, that a lot of my faith and politics were a reaction to what was happening outwardly and not just like spurred because it was true. But yeah. Right. So I think 
And you can almost, not to get too meta, but you can almost see the differences in the books that come out during this time to introduce us to Mormonism. Matt Bowman wrote a wonderful book, The Mormon People, that came out in 2012 in the midst of the Mormon moment. And it really is, in some ways, you know, a, a triumph of this is how Mormons got here as part of the great American experiment. Hurrah for pluralism. Whereas my book, you know, which is also a product of its age, is, uh, hey, we need to understand how we got to today's fault lines. Um, we need to understand why we are at this moment of major cultural clashes. And I, and I really hope American Zion, uh, as part of a much larger corpus of scholarly work going on outside of Mormonism, but I really ho helps us understand how we got to this moment where religion has become such a divisive topic in America. Mm. Yeah, let me read. I, I actually do want to read the top of this page now because it goes perfectly in with what you were just saying. Ben writes, deeper political divisions are found between generations. A 2020 survey revealed that white, uh, that while, sorry, that while 80% of Mormons over the age of 40 voted for Trump, only 43% of those below 40 did. Indeed, Mormon millennials exhibited a much more progressive view than their predecessors with only 46 percent leaning Republican, a figure that paled in comparison to young Mormon voters only a decade earlier, animated by issues like social justice, racial equality, and gender rights, and building on longstanding Mormon support for immigration, the rising generation of saints appeared anxious to take the Mormon vote in a new direction. Digital technologies and social media have enabled Latter-day Saint liberals to organize as a minority faction within a minority religion. So fascinating. So many good stories that Ben tells within this um, of different different activists and so forth on, on both sides, <laughs> fighting for different things. Um, but uh, And yet the very topic that appears most animating among Mormon and millennials, gender and sexuality, is increasingly the hill on which the modern LDS institu institution, sorry, it's really small on my screen, is willing to fight so fascinating. Like, I think those are things that we really know, but when Ben lays it out in this entire long, um, fantastic explanation of one story leading to another, leading to another, you really get the understanding of why Mormonism itself will die on this hill and obviously why millennials and other people will not. But yeah, it is increasingly the hill on which the modern LDS institution is willing to fight, um, making their long-term prospects within the faith an open question. All right. right. I, th I think it's the great irony that there are there's a grassroots movement around among young Mormons to try to take Mormonism in a more liberal direction. Yet until the church takes a different takes a different stay step on gender and sexuality, I don't see how that movement's going to survive. Either it's going to fail and they become more conservative because they determine their faith commitments are more important than their progressive values, or they're going to decide their progressive values are more important and they're going to leave the church, joining the, the much larger chorus of those within Mormonism who are joining what we call the faith of the nons, those who are of no faith anymore, which is where a majority of Mormons who leave go. I think they should all go into the church of Ben Park. I'm just kidding. Ben <laughs> I, I, Park. I only ask 9% of my followers. So so it's 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 a very 9%. I only ask a 9% tithing. Uh so it's it's a very uh, accommodating faith. I'll beat you. Eight. I'm just kidding. Dang it. Yeah, people are leaving and they're creating their 
uh, carving their own path. And it's a wild, wild west in and of itself out here. There's a lot to be said about the post-Mormon journey of where you find yourself once you wrestle with this type of history. But it's important stuff to at least understand what's gone on. And I love the way that you you thread all of these different topics through the different characters and all the different influences. I cannot speak more highly of this book, American Zion. So it's available everywhere January 16th. And Ben was kind enough to let me get the PDF of it. And I actually listened to it on my Speechify app. I wish they would sponsor me. And I had Gwyneth Paltrow's AI voice reading it to me. So I was like, ooh, the book before it's even out with a celebrity voice in my ear. So I breezed right through it. And it was really, it's a page turner if you are into just digesting Mormon history like I am. So I hope everyone picks it up. If you aren't, then get the hell out. It's fascinating stuff, especially the way that Ben reads. And then pick up Kingdom of Nauvoo, too. Um, anything else we didn't get to that you wanted to say? Nope. It's an honor to be on. I can't wait for people to read. Uh, make sure to review it on the you, on Amazon and, and uh, Goodreads and all the different platforms. Buy gifts for your friends. I, 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 I hope that the book has a message that can help us make sense of today's age. And uh, I'm excited, hopefully, for it to reach an audience to do so. Yeah. And like we said, it's really can go out to just about anybody, whatever their interaction is with Mormonism. I don't think I, I'm a, I mean, I'm always wrong on this. I don't think that things that should be like as contentious, usually they usually end up being more contentious than I think they're going to be. But I do think that like a, a true believing Mormon, like my parents could pick it up and, and learn a lot and not feel like, you know, offended or attacked or anything. It's, it's really taken from your, your unbiased type of historical view of how all these characters and conflicts interacted over time. So I really think it's approachable for anybody. Well, thank you. That's my goal. Yay. All right. I uh, have a link down below to Ben's website. Make sure to follow him on all of the social media. You do amazing TikToks. He's on Instagram. Um, I already had your Instagram pulled up and then I lost it again. Sorry, bud. It's fine. Don't worry about it. All right. So bug Ben to come on on a regular basis. I love when we get to have these really important chats like this. So please uh, like and support this video any way that you can. And if you uh, want to throw some dollars to my nonprofit to keep this work sustainable, I'll super duper appreciate it. Pick up Ben's book next week. And Ben, any last final words? Nope. That's it. It's been an honor to be on. All right. Appreciate you guys.